Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. We have been working our way through Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, in particularly this treatise, uh, little book within a book on the life of the Christian man, book three, chapters six through ten. And today we get to chapter eight. Chapter eight, you'll remember, um, we've started it last time. Uh, this time we're going to finish it off. Uh, takes up the second half of Jesus' famous saying in Mark 8 and those parallel passages where he says that anyone who wants to come after him must first deny himself, that's chapter 7, and then take up his cross, chapter 8. And so chapter 8 is all to do with the place of suffering in the Christian life. Uh, now, just before I jump in, I need to uh, make one quick apology. Uh, you may hear some background banging and clunking and scraping on this week's podcast. My apologies for that. Uh, we have some renovation work doing, uh, being done here at the Church at All Saints this week, and it's going to look fantastic when it's done. We're having some tile put in on the lower uh, floor of the administrative office section of the building. And uh, Nilsson and the guys from Virtuous Tile are doing a fantastic job, but like any uh, guys are doing a job like that, they're cutting tile and banging it and pushing it into place, and it's all clicking together, and it's um, making a bit of a racket while it does it. But I thought uh, a slightly background noise-ridden podcast was better than none. And so uh, with that apology in place, uh, here we go. So just um, to dive into chapter eight and orient you once again to where we are. Um, so far in sections uh, one, to, one to six, Calvin has talked about um, the place of uh, suffering in general. And he's tried to give us, as he's done so many times before, a deeply theologically grounded understanding of why it is that suffering as a Christian is particularly appropriate and necessary in a sense as we seek to follow Christ. You remember he connects it to our sonship, our adoption into the family of God where God deals graciously with all his sons and he deals with all his sons in the same way in this respect. Uh, God so loves his son that he causes him to suffer and God so loves us that we walk the path of Christ-likeness which means walking the path of suffering. Um, beginning with Christ he deals this way with all his children, is what Calvin says. Uh, and so you've got suffering in general. Uh, the first five sections, uh, he describes it as medicine uh, to bring us to maturity and so on and to shape us in Christ's image. There's something, we could even go deeper than this, I think, you, worth mentioning this perhaps for a moment. There's something within the character of God himself, which makes it singularly appropriate that God the Son should have this kind of a mission. I mean, just think about it for a second. It's the character of the triune God that gives rise to this world as it is, leaving aside for one moment the possibility, could God have created any other world? There's a debate on that subject among Reformed theologians. But given that this world is how it is, there's something within God's being, his nature as God, which makes it singularly appropriate that the, uh, not only that he should come into the world in the person of his son in the first place, that, but that that mission to the world should be one in which he takes upon himself a burden of human finitude and suffering and hardship. That actually reveals something deep-rooted about the character of God himself uh, as it's expressed in the son. And we are conformed to the likeness of the son, which means that we take up his cross and we follow him in that way through our lives. And so all that stuff is in the background of what Calvin's saying here. He also talks, um, briefly we looked at this at the end of the previous episode, about the, the cross as fatherly chastisement. That is to say, uh, the recognition that sometimes, though not always, our father uses the sufferings that we experience as a way to train us, not just in relation to our immaturity, but in relation to our sinfulness. 
It doesn't mean that every uh, act of sin that we commit will be met with a kind of corresponding act, uh, a period of suffering or an instance of suffering. And it certainly doesn't mean we can read back the other way and say, well, here I am, I've got COVID or something, I must have sinned. But it does mean two things. It means you might have sinned. And Calvin is at pains to emphasize that whenever we're afflicted, remembrance of our past life ought to come to mind, and we'll probably find something that we ought to be reflecting on. Um, but also we should remember that the, the suffering in which we're involved is the suffering of the fallen human race in a world scarred by sin. And in a sense, that's what uh, causes us, which Calvin would get to in the next chapter, chapter nine, to cry out for a renewed and transformed world. We'll get to that uh, in the next episode, and maybe there'll be a few more hints of it here. But so suffering in general, suffering as a response to uh, sin in one form or another, we get to section seven, and here Calvin starts talking about um, suffering for righteousness' sake, and particularly has in mind persecution. Uh, now I'm going to uh, read a few sentences as ever from this, and then just make some comments on it. We'll see actually it's somewhat broader than how we might think of persecution in broad terms. Goodness, there goes a drill or a circular saw or something. Um, Anyway, uh, it's somewhat broader than we might think of um, suffering in uh, persecution in, in, in conventional terms, but nonetheless, it's connected with that and it's worth our thinking about. So without further ado, section seven. Now, to suffer persecution for righteousness sake is a singular comfort, for it ought to occur to us how much honour God bestows upon us in thus furnishing us with the special badge of his soldiery. Suffering persecution for the sake of righteousness is the special badge of being a soldier of Christ. Why is that? Well, it's just obvious. Given what we've seen so far, that's how Christ overthrew the forces of darkness and evil, precisely by suffering as a testimony of righteousness and suffering because he was righteous. Humanly speaking, just think of the narratives of the Gospels. It's because he was righteous in the sight of um, the Roman authorities and those um, Jewish leaders who colluded with them, that he was subject to death within those human purposes. And so he's suffering in that sense for righteousness sake. And we are sharing with him in the sense uh, that we are being conformed to his likeness and following that path if we suffer in a similar way. I say that, sorry, I say that not only they who labor for the defense of the gospel but they who in any way maintain the cause of righteousness suffer persecution for righteousness. And this is interesting because what it does is it guards us against a, a narrow misunderstanding of what it might mean to suffer for righteousness sake. It's easy to think of the first, second, third century, fourth century Christian martyrs as suffering for righteousness sake. And um, the people whose lives um, are recorded in works like Fox's Book of Martyrs and the Reformation Martyrs and so on. It's easy to think of them as suffering for righteousness sake. And perhaps it's easy to think of people in more modern situations, the pastors who've been arrested by overbearing and tyrannical authorities in recent months in connection with simply trying to do their jobs as um, ministers of the gospel, or in other parts of the world where that is far, far more common than what we have experienced here in the West. It's easy to think of those guys as um, suffering persecution for righteousness sake, and indeed they are. But the misunderstanding would be narrowly to restrict what persecution for righteousness sake is to just those people. Clearly it includes them, but they don't exhaust what is meant by it. Calvin continues, whether in declaring God's truth against Satan's falsehoods, well, like those preachers are, 
or in taking up the protection of the good and the innocent against the wrongs of the wicked. We must undergo the offences and hatred of the world, which may imperil either our life, our fortunes, or our honour. You see what Calvin's doing here? He's wanting to broaden slightly what it means to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, not simply if you are being objectively singled out and your Christian convictions are identified by your persecutors as the reason why you're suffering. You're suffering for righteousness' sake if you experience any kind of dishonour or hardship or imperilment of any kind when you're seeking to do good, perhaps particularly, as Calvin says, um, to uh, protect the good and the innocent against the wrongs of the wicked. Just cast that statement as broadly as you possibly can. Uh, a, a family that's seeking to raise their kids faithfully and Christianly in a context where that's made difficult, not by systematic opposition against them uh, because they're Christians, but just by structures of government or society or anything else which are being shaped in an ungodly way, not targeting them specifically, but just making life difficult one way or another. Those, per those people who are seeking to cleave to the path of righteousness and do what's best for their kids are suffering for righteousness sake. And that means you know, the dad who's out at work during the day, uh, it means the children themselves um, who are you know, not able to just, well, let's sign up to the local school and head down there because that'd be great because it wouldn't be. Um, it might be, it certainly would be the mother um, who very often uh, labours under a huge strain of the workload of raising young kids and teaching slightly older ones. Uh, all this stuff counts because it all comes under the heading of what it means to live within a world where there is hostility to the gospel systemically in our culture and our society, which makes, makes life difficult for those who are seeking not to stand against the tide. An illustration, maybe, if you imagine seeking to uh, walk across a river, you know, the easiest thing to do um, if you're a half-decent swimmer is just, you know, you know, give up trying to wade uh, and stand against the current, but just to lie on your back, nice warm water carrying you downstream and just drift wherever it takes you. My family and I had a, uh, a vacation a few years ago in the in southern France, in the Dordogne Valley, which is a beautiful river valley. And we just, um, the river is shallow. It's about three or four or five feet deep most of the time. And it's, and it's slow flowing and it's warm and clear. And it flows through these beautiful limestone carved valleys. You could easily just lie on a kind of flotation device or in a canoe like we did and just drift and fall asleep on the stream, just drifting along with the world. And that's fantastic if what you're doing is sitting in a river in southern France. It's not fantastic if what you're doing is standing against a culture that's hostile to Jesus. If the river is, so to speak, the, the culture that is hostile to the gospel, anybody who stands firm, just standing there means standing up against the onrushing water. And so if you're experiencing anything like that, not directed at you specifically, but directed against the church and against Christ generally. That's what Calvin has in mind here. He carries on. Even poverty, if it be judged in itself, is misery. Likewise, exile, contempt, prison, disgrace, finally death itself is the ultimate of all calamities. See again how he's broadening these things, recognizing that in, in the lives of real people, sometimes they're imprisoned because they preached about Christ. Sometimes life just gets hard because they're living faithfully. But when the favour of our God breathes upon us, every one of these things turns into happiness for us. 
we ought accordingly to be content with the testimony of Christ rather than with the false estimation of the flesh. And this is um, connected to a text that he's just alluded to in a, a sentence to I didn't read, in Matthew 5, of course, in the, uh, the Beatitudes, when he says he concludes with the, the Beatitudes with the saying in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. In other words, this is a foundational aspect of what it is to be blessed by the living God. And that's the first thing really he wants to emphasize, which is why I've underlined it multiple times really um, in thinking about uh, suffering of this kind. Now he continues in the next uh, section because this naturally prompts uh, various other thoughts about, well, what sort of demeanor, what sort of attitude should we have to this um, suffering? And he's talked once or twice about cheerfulness and patience. Um, and uh, that's a good thing, obviously. Um, you want to be cheerful, you want to be patient. But it prompts further questions because there's a way of imagining that the cheerfulness that God requires is this kind of either stoic indifference or um, Pollyannic uh, joyfulness when you're actually in pain. Uh, and neither of those things is biblical. And Calvin wants to tackle them. So, first, um, the latter of those. Uh, mistaken responses that I hinted at. Here goes, section eight now, about second paragraph. Yet such a cheerfulness is not required of us as to remove all feeling of bitterness and pain. Otherwise, in the cross, there would be no forbearance of the saints unless they were tormented by pain and anguished by trouble. If there were no harshness in poverty, no torment in diseases, no sting in disgrace, no dread in death, what fortitude or moderation would there be in bearing them with indifference? In other words, what he's recognizing is that we're not supposed to be acting as though these things are fine and make us all happy. Um, no, that's unrealistic. It's uh, rather, it's the case um, that uh, it's the attitude that we are to take in bearing those genuine hardships, which is important. I'll uh, read on. But since each of these, with an inborn bitterness, by its very nature, bites the hearts of us all, the fortitude of the believing man is brought to light if, tried by the feeling of such bitterness, however grievously he is troubled with it, yet valiantly resisting, he surmounts it. We're not supposed to say to the martyrs of old that they should have enjoyed the blows and the beatings of their persecutors. It's rather that they valiantly surmount that pain. And um, to far, far, far lesser degrees for the vast majority of us, mercifully, that's the kind of attitude that we have to have. It's not, uh, we've got to be cheerful, therefore let's smilingly uh, embrace whatever uh, the Lord in his providence should subject us to. There's the kind of wisdom of the balance, recognising the genuine emotional uh, and sometimes physical pain that Calvin here has in mind alongside that. Here his forbearance, Calvin continues, reveals itself. If sharply pricked, he is still restrained by the fear of God from breaking into any intemperate act. And that's very interesting because it does tell you what kind of restraint is necessary. Not restraint of all emotion. Certainly not uh, restraint of the kind of laments and cries of grief that you see uh, in the scripture, like the Psalms, for example. But being restrained by the fear of God from breaking into any intemperate act, anything ungodly that we could be provoked to is to be resisted. Here his cheerfulness shines if, wounded by sorrow and grief, he rests 
in the spiritual consolation of God. In other words, it's not experiencing no sorrow, experiencing no grief, but in that experience, resting in the grace of God. Now, I mentioned another false um, way of thinking about this, which uh, is somewhat overlaps with the, uh, the one we've just thought through, but um, is historically distinct and is treated slightly separately by Calvin. Um, he uh, refers to what the editors have called here in the heading Stoic insensibility. Think of the Stoics, uh, people like Marcus Aurelius. Um, it was a school of philosophy that, among many other things, um, uh, prized the idea of being unmoved by our circumstances, either positively or negatively. And Calvin here both expounds and critiques uh, this viewpoint uh, from a distinctively Christian perspective. Quote, you see that Patiently to bear the cross, which is what we are to do in this chapter about carrying the cross, is not to be utterly stupefied and to be deprived of all feeling of pain. It is not as the Stoics of old foolishly described, quote, the great souled man, unquote, one who, having cast off all human qualities, was affected equally by adversity and prosperity, by sad times and happy ones, nay, who was like a, who, like a stone, was not affected at all. See his description and uh, not so subtle critique, um, or at least statement of critique at this point. Um, his observation, in other words, is we're not aiming to be unmoved. We even use the term stoic in that uh, non-technical sense today, don't we? We talk about somebody being um, stoical or just stoic, meaning that they, they seem emotionally unmoved by circumstances. Actually, that's not what's required of us. What's required, rather, is that we're moved rightly, which will include sorrow and grief. Um, it might include tears, um, and it would include joy and celebration and thanksgiving. And it will include thanksgiving at happy circumstances and grief at sad ones. In other words, we are to respond in a way that is that registers with the reality of who we've been created to be. But all of those many and varied emotions are to be kept in check by our, our fidelity to Christ and to the scriptures. And then there will be those paradoxical expressions of, for example, joy in suffering. Think of Hebrews 11 and the, the list of the heroes of the faith who, like Moses, considered it. Uh, uh, Moses, or Jesus, Abraham, um, and a whole bunch of other people um, who considered it in different ways joy to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Uh, Calvin continues, we'll have nothing to do with this iron philosophy. He's talking about stoicism again which our Lord and Master has condemned not only by his word, but also by his example. So now we get more into the actual details of uh, the substance of Calvin's critique. How does Jesus critique Stoicism? Well, by his word and his example. Example, he groaned and wept both over his own and others' misfortunes. So that must be okay then. When you think of Jesus' reaction when he arrived at the grave of Lazarus, where um, the, the verb that's used um, in John's gospel is used to describe the snorting of horses, Jesus' indignation uh, and, I don't know whether you call it irritation or frustration or maybe even anger um, at the incursion of death into the life of one of his friends. Um, and he taught his disciples, Calvin continues, in the same way, the world, he says, will rejoice, but you will be sorrowful and will weep, John 16, 20. And that no one might turn it into a vice, he openly proclaimed, blessed are those who mourn. Again, Matthew 5, Sermon um, on the Mount, the Beatitudes at the start of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5 to 7. So you see what's going on. It's not 
that we are supposed to keep all our emotions on the inside. There is Christian mourning, there is Christian grief, there are Christian tears, just as there's Christian celebration and joyfulness. Uh, these don't register one-to-one with negative and positive circumstances, so to speak, but some kind of emotional response is appropriate. And actually, there's a kind of thing which, from a pastoral point of view, is is hard to coach people in. Sometimes people ask um, questions which are really kind of specific. How should I act in such and such a situation? Think of a funeral. Like, is it appropriate to cry at a funeral, or should we be... Um, joyfully celebrating the life of the deceased? And I think the answer is yes. Like, of course, it's appropriate to cry at a funeral. And of course, it's appropriate to celebrate um, the life of a friend or a family member who's died. But the details of those circumstances will vary dramatically. Uh, even within, in a funeral, I mean, a funeral is hardly a monolithic series of just one emotional experience, is it? Um, if you've been to funerals, you'll know this. There are moments of deep sadness and reflection, and then there are, there are lighter moments and uh, moments of smiling and even laughter. And I've been at funerals which have had all that and more. And so it's not even possible to characterize, okay, how should I be in this situation in a, in a simple normative fashion? I think rather what we're to do is um, to be shaped by our constant ongoing exposure to the Word of God and uh, constantly trying to live out the Word of God in faithful ways as far as we can. And what we'll find is that gradually our intuitions come more to be in tune with the Scriptures at this point. So we kind of know when it's appropriate to laugh and know when it's appropriate to cry and to weep and so on. Because otherwise you'd end up in this situation of, of impossible contradiction where you, you really wouldn't know what to do because always somewhere in the world there's a reason for joyfulness. A new child has been born or some other reason for celebration, someone's been converted or something like that. And always in the world, there's a reason for sadness. People dying of starvation all the time, Christians being persecuted all the time. So what would you do if you wanted to take all that into account? The answer is you can't take it all into account, all in the same way, with the same intensity at the same time. And so the appropriate Christian response to this experience of living in a world filled with all these uh, positive and negative circumstances is going to have to be shaped within us by the word of God over time as we come to find an intuitively biblical way of responding to all life's circumstances. Just turning on to the next section, section 10, uh, Calvin's interesting here because he, he pulls back the curtain on, on his thought process at this point. And I'll read a couple of sentences and we'll see what I mean. I decided to say this in order to recall godly minds from despair, lest because they cannot cast off the natural feeling of sorrow, they forthwith renounce the pursuit of patience. Isn't that insightful? Uh, he, this guy's a pastor as well as a theologian. He's a preacher as well as a writer. And he's conscious that if he doesn't emphasize this, then people who just do feel overwhelmed with, say, sorrow, will conclude that they've got no resources to be patient in suffering. If um, patience in suffering is not compatible with feeling sorrowful, then somebody who feels inescapably sorrowful will likely just give up. So Calvin wants to emphasize, no, that feeling of sorrow is entirely right, entirely good in a sense, in the sense that it's the right response to this terrible situation, just as Jesus responded rightly with sorrow in certain situations. The question is, 
what kind of sorrow is it? What other emotions is it mixed with? And so on. Um, it's not, in other words, that we're pursuing uh, stoic insensibility. Calvin uses the phrase um, insensibility again uh, here. Um, this must necessarily happen to those who make patience into insensibility and a valiant and constant man into a stock. In other words, valiant and constant doesn't mean you're just stuck there like this. Patience doesn't mean being unmoved by circumstances. Now, this um, uh, brings us pretty close to the end of this section. There's one final uh, comment that Calvin makes, um, which paves the way for what he's going to talk about next time. I wanted to say a word or two about this, and then we'll conclude. Um, uh, when uh, I'll just read a couple of sentences, then I'll explain what I mean. Scripture praises the saints for their forbearance when, so afflicted with harsh misfortune, they do not break or fall, so stabbed with bitterness, they are at the same time flooded with joy. See what's talking about. Um, the same circumstances can promote, uh, rightly, sadness and grief and joy at the same time. So pressed by apprehension, they recover their breath, revived by God's consolation. So what's happening here? You're being pulled in two directions. And that being pulled in two directions, Calvin sees, has a vital and important theological background to it as well. The next sentence reveals it. In the meantime, their hearts still harbour a contradiction between their natural sense, which flees and dreads what it feels averse to itself, and their predisposition to godliness, which even through these difficulties it presses towards obedience to the divine will. So we're feeling this tension within ourselves between our natural sense, our natural inclination, and uh, being drawn towards um, the uh, divine will, as he puts it. And that's not to say that one of these reactions is good and the other is bad. One is um, right in keeping with the fact that here we are in this world with this suffering, and the other is good in the sense that it's recognising the divine will is at work in here. God has a plan in this situation. So both of these are good, and we're kind of pulled in two directions at once. That then opens the door to the next chapter, which is called, or chapter nine, is called Meditation on the Future Life. And this is another layer of Calvin's way of thinking through how we respond to hardship. It's to recognise that it's not permanent, and to meditate thoughtfully and carefully on the future life, uh, where we won't feel this eschatological tension between the now and the not yet. Uh, the progressive unfolding of God's purposes in history, which we're in now, and the future consummation of those purposes, uh, which is not yet. We won't feel that tension when the not yet has arrived. And that uh, provides an extra layer in Calvin's response to how we should deal with these circumstances now. But that, I think, looking at the time here, we ought to save until next week when we look at chapter 9, Meditation on the Future Life. That'll do us for now. The Lord bless you. Thank you for bearing with the background noise and see you all next time. Bye for now.